Welcome to another edition of Conversations with Creative Women. I'm Sandy Klein. Due to the unprecedented times we're living in, courtesy COVID-19, we are recording our conversations remotely. So, you might notice a difference in audio quality. What remains the same, however, is getting to know yet another hell of a creative woman. Meet Nora McInerney, whose introduction could last as long as our entire conversation. But briefly, Nora is an author, a humorist, a podcast host, and a founder of a nonprofit. Her most recent novel, Bad Moms, in which she joins forces with the original screenwriters, is based on the 2016 blockbuster movie of the same name. More on that to come. Her critically acclaimed memoirs, It's Okay to Laugh and No Happy Endings, chronicle the year 2014, when, in a span of just six weeks, she miscarried. Her dad died of cancer and her husband succumbed to a brain tumor. In the Hot Young Widows Club, Nora offers a humorous and caring approach to dealing with life's biggest struggles. Her essays have appeared in numerous publications, including Elle, Cosmo, and Time. She's also the host of Terrible Thanks for Asking, and was also invited to speak on Ted's main stage. Nora happens to be the founder of the nonprofit Still Kickin', and if that's not enough, she was voted most humorous by the Annunciation Catholic School Class of 1998. Okay, Nora, I'm exhausted. I know that was a lot. I was, I mean, even listening to that, I'm like, oh my God, who, who is this lady? God, give it a rest. But um, <laughs> yeah, that's me. Although I have to fact check myself. Turns out I graduated from Annunciation in 1997, which is news to me. So, <laughs> well, maybe they honored you for two years in a row. I think I might have been two years of the of the most humorous. Yeah, um, hey, all that. There's nothing wrong with that. Yeah, um, you know, <laughs> when you just were commenting about this introduction, and this is so part of you know who you are, your DNA. But when you listen to somebody rattle all these things off, does it give you pause? Wish it did. Um, but I think that, you know, the way that I'm, the way that I'm built is that I metabolize success very quickly. Um, and, and, you know, perceived failures or shortcomings very, very, very slowly. So I'm an achievement oriented person by nature and probably, you know, uh, probably always have been, but I do think that, that part of my personality really came to the forefront after Aaron died and after my dad died. Aaron was my first husband. He was 35 when he died. My dad was 64, which, you know, at the time felt, you know, much older than Aaron, but now I'm like, oh my God, 64 is also so young. And uh, the two of them were very, very, very creative people and had so much left to do. And I think that their deaths really pushed me into like a straight up, uh, straight up midlife crisis where I am going to do as many things as possible until it's not possible for me to do things anymore. So there was a kind of a reckoning with your own mortality. I think there, I think that's a natural, you know, reaction to stuff. And there was also just sort of like a, a really, really, really low tolerance for uh, like Yes. And I had a very, very good career that I, that I still like appreciate so much. I worked in marketing for about, uh, about 10 years, maybe no, not not possible for like five years, six years, who knows how long, not that long. Mm -hmm. And, um, and I learned how to do, you know, anything 
Like that's what you learn when you work in, in an ad agency or a, a PR agency or, or a marketing agency. Like you learn how to figure anything out. Anything is figure outable. So I didn't want to do that anymore. I didn't want to, you know, go to long meetings and sit through, you know, uh, sit through brainstorms and, 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 and do client work anymore where everything was like treated like an emergency, even though like we're talking about headlines, not, you know, not like actual life or death situations. And I, I, I left that job, which is not recommended. If you are, if you are on your own and have a child, you should not quit your one um, source of income. But I just had no more fear of what it would look like to not be good at something. I was more afraid of not, not doing something. So, so um, was it carpe diem kind of thing? I guess, I guess it's, I, I also think that it is a, a common and not always healthy coping mechanism for grief, which is to try to outwork it or outrun it to stay as busy as possible so that you uh, can kind of, you know, just, just keep yourself going in, in any way that you can. And I, I did, uh, I, I left my job after Aaron died and I, um, I did get, I did get a book deal, which was a, a brilliant stroke of, of, of luck. And, uh, and I, I started to just figure out how to do my own thing. And part of that also was like, I didn't have a choice. I took away the choice for myself by just not having a regular job anymore. If I would have kept a job and then decided, well, yeah, you know, on the weekends, I'll write this book proposal. I'll figure out how to write a book. I never would have done it. So I took away, you know, the last remaining safety net that I had. And uh, lo and behold, like fear of losing your, your, your house um, is, is a really great motivator to, to keep you moving forward. I think you buried the lead here. You quit your job in marketing. You got a book deal. I mean, what's that about? After my husband died, I didn't get a book deal. Actually, I will give you like the full secret to getting a book deal uh, or how I got my book deal. And this is information that is free and available for anybody on my website, which is that Aaron and I wrote his obituary together before he died, obviously, in order for him to take part in it, he had to be alive. And we did not know if they would publish it, uh, the Minneapolis Star Tribune. What we didn't realize is that, you know, they publish anything because you pay for it. In obituary is just an advertisement for your death. Right, right. And, um, and his obituary went viral, like very, 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 very viral. And this was 2014 when there was maybe like one viral story a day or maybe a week. And his was, his, his lived on for several, several days and was everywhere that I turned on the radio, on TV, on the internet. Uh, There were, there were the words we wrote. There was, there was his, his photo. And because that, unorthodox, yeah. I mean, we said, you know, we we revealed his identity as Spider Man and thanked him for fighting, um, you know, cancer for all of us. And you know, we we honored his first wife, Gwen Stefani, and we just we I we wrote it together because I wanted Aaron to have, you know, like to have a say in what his life meant. And, and, and to have like part in that last word, because he was so, so funny. So he did it as a favor to me. We did it as a, as an inside joke for the people who loved him. And as a result, it was 
everywhere. And a lot of people found the writing that I'd been doing while Erin was, was sick, which was, you know, a blog that I'd, I'd, I'd written. And that is how my now agent found me. And that is, you know, what ended up getting me a, a book deal, which was, you know, not, uh, not, not my goal, <laughs> like not my goal at the time, but was something that felt really, really, you know, important to be able to document the experience of being widowed very young mm-hmm. and, and to do it like really right in the thick of it. I think there are so many books that are written, you know, from that sort of safe, comfortable distance of like five years or 10 years or 15 years or 20 years. And I love those books and those books have been wonderful. And also I firmly believe that being in something is also a perspective. So, um, so that first book, it's okay to laugh. Crying is cool too, was written in those six months after Aaron died. And I would spend my days, you know, taking our son to daycare and doing like a little bit of like freelance copywriting to, to, to pay my more immediate bills. And then I would sit down and I would just, just, just write. And I had no idea how to write a book. And I would Google, how do you write a book? And it turns out like you write a book, however the hell you want to write a book. Like no one can tell you how to do it. Did it pour out of you? It a, a draft poured out of me, and I remember sending it to my editor and not hearing back for several weeks, and her being like, uh, "Okay, um, thank you so much for this draft. Uh, you can keep it for yourself." Um, <laughs> and she gave me, I think, probably the best piece of writing advice that I've ever gotten, which is, she told me that I was writing that story as as if I. I was writing it for somebody who had already decided that our story was a sad one. And she asked me if I thought that um, my life with Aaron was a sad story. And of course I didn't No, Like our story had sadness and, and his, his death will always be sad, but no, he was not a sad story. Our marriage is not a sad story. And that clicked something in me. And after that, I started right over from the beginning and everything did pour out. And that has always kind of been my experience with writing either, you know, either it's, it's, it's nothing's coming out or it's all coming together, like all at once. And I, I seem to have very little, you know, control over that, except that I can tell if it's not coming out, I'm not writing what I'm supposed to be writing. But it obviously makes a difference, does it not? How personal your story, I couldn't write your story. I just wrote a, a novel too, which is, is not my story. Um, it's just a made up story. And, uh, and that came out very, very quickly too, because that is what I wanted to, you know, that's what I wanted to be doing. And, and so I think like the experience for me with, with creativity and with the things that I make are like, does this feel right and true to me? And if it doesn't, like, I am just not a good faker. I'm just not a good faker. So, you know, the, what, what I sent my editor at first for my first uh, memoir was something that, um, like, that I really had struggled with. Like, I had spent, you know, two months being like, God, how do you write a book? Do I start here? Do I do this? And like, really, really every word that came out was like, you know, a, a, like a, an act of torture. Huh. And, and somehow she could tell. 
she could tell. And everything that I wrote after then just like it came up. I could sit down and write, you know, 10,000 words at a time and not even realize that time had passed because I was writing, I don't know, like I was just writing the story that I wanted to tell, which was not just a sad story and not just a cancer story. And, you know, that, that, that first memoir, when, when people like ask like, oh, but like, you know, I wanted to know like more about his sickness. I was like, well, I didn't want to tell it. (laughs) (laughs) I didn't want to, I didn't want to. And there are certain things that, you know, belong just in, just between the two of us. Um, Mm -hmm. And I think that's okay. I think that when you're thinking about like how you write creative nonfiction and how you write like the story of your life, it does not mean that you owe every detail to every person. And in fact, like I did not want, want cancer to be the, the, the main character in our story because it really wasn't, it really wasn't. I bring this up a lot with the women who I have conversations with because there is this reoccurring theme. It is this strong sense of self that each one seems to have. And you can certainly own up to that for yourself as well, can't you? Um, God, I wonder. Um, <laughs> now that you bring it up to me, I'm like, do I have a strong sense of self? I think that I could not tell you who I am. If you ask, if you asked me like, God, what's it? But I can always tell when something's wrong. And I think that's like as good of a place to start as any, I can always tell when something is not me and is not true and is not right. So yeah. So I don't know. I don't know if I would, if I would consider myself a person who has a strong sense of self, but I'm glad to, I'm glad to, uh, to hear that I come off that way. But I think that I'm also like a person who like, I mean, I'm a pretty self-aware person and a pretty self- um, reflective person. And I do, I do tend to spend it like a fair amount of time on, on that part of my, myself, if that makes sense. There's also this, this support and the encouragement of when, when one is growing up. And then, I mean, I've met women who didn't get that at home, for example, but somewhere knew I could do this and I'm going to forge ahead and I'm going to do that. And it's just very empowering and it's very exciting. I think like if anything, I did grow up in a house where my parents were really, really encouraging. And, you know, I always wanted to be a writer when I was little and my parents had absolute belief in me. And, and yet I also just went through the world and I went through like a world where like, you know, if you wanting something is dangerous because like, if you don't get it, people will know that you tried and you failed. And then you will have to be what, like embarrassed, which is so strange because I don't ever feel that way about somebody else who has tried something and not been immediately successful. I've always admired that effort in other people, but I also feared making that effort for myself. So I went to college and I, you know, saw all these people doing things that were really interesting to them and, you know, writing for the the student newspaper and joining these clubs. But I thought like, Oh God, like I can't do that. And I have no idea why. And if I could go back in time, I would probably grab myself by the scruff of the neck and walk myself into that newspaper building and say, look at all these, none of these people are better than you. They're just trying. Like they're just trying and you're, you're not here to try to like be the best at something. Like you're just, you're just here on earth to learn and try things. But I did not know that for a very long time. I truly thought like you just sort of, I don't know, like you take the path of least resistance and you do, you do a thing that you're already good at and, and, uh, and you just sort of 
follow the steps, follow the syllabus. I was prior to Erin getting sick. I was very, very excited to be promoted into a job that I didn't even enjoy. Um, And then I thought, well, okay, so I guess my future is I'll just eventually get my boss's job and then her boss's job. And then, you know, just be at the tippy top of this thing that gives me deep, deep anxiety starting, you know, Friday at 630 when I leave the office until, um, you know, it just never lets up. Like my Sunday dread started Friday night. Well, I think sometimes that happens to us and we just I mean, we don't do anything about it. But clearly you took control of you. Uh, the unfortunate part is that was not <laughs> what you had planned. None of that, none of us planned that. And the fact that that this was not what you imagined your life to be like. Not at all. I never would have been like, oh God, you know, I can't wait to be, you know, 37 years old, widowed and and uh, remarried and, and working from home, writing books and having this podcast and truly like having a job which which is really just me following my creative interests. If you would have told me that, you know, the cost of that would be this immense loss, of course I wouldn't have chosen that. But also, you know, our lives are not a series of transactions. We do not trade one experience for another. It is an unfolding and it leads you to one thing. It's not as if I... I picked any of this. I took what was left and I made it into something new. And it is absolutely okay to love what you have, even if it came from a terrible, terrible place. That is okay. That is like a big, that is something that I want all women to know because for some reason, we don't judge or begrudge men for taking their experiences and turning them into art or turning them into business or turning them into something else. But we do tend to have a harsher view of women who do the same thing. We see a woman's experience and we don't consider that like a form of expertise when in fact, most of us are going to get our 10,000 hours uh, through our own personal life experience. Yeah. And, and, uh, and I think creating from like truth is like a very, very powerful thing. I just think it's, I think it's such a strange thing where women automatically feel that if they're, if they're creating from uh, like their own experience that it somehow has less value or that it's something that they need to justify or apologize for. And, and really um, you don't, you don't at all. Like you are, you are still, you are still making something, you are still contributing to this world. And, and how have we all gotten through everything that we've gotten through, through like the stories and experiences of other people? You know, when writing your memoirs, it's okay to laugh and no happy endings what was that like after they were published in terms of how they resonated with people out there? Here's the thing. Like I went from a world where our, uh, our sense of success comes from like 360 reviews with like, you know, five people from other departments and everybody fills out a form and, uh, and then you hope you've had enough like good personal interactions with another person that they'll, they'll give you like a decent review and maybe you'll get a 5% raise. Uh-huh. And then I went into this world where like the 360 reviews are on Amazon. Um, <laughs> and, and maybe they have like literally like, you know, maybe they have nothing to do even with like how good 
bit of a job you've done, but with um, how, how somebody's book arrived to them, which you have no control over, and something that is very, very deeply personal to you is, is an object to somebody else. And your success depends on people liking the thing you made, but also liking you and also on your ability to sort of like package up your own sense of self and your own story and present it to the world in a way that is, you know, appealing and, and nuanced, but not, not too challenging. And also that appeals to absolutely as many people as possible. So it's hard, like it's, it's, it's difficult. So what I've learned in the past few years is to like, is that the making of the thing is enough? Like I I have had to separate my own sense of self-worth from the performance of the piece, if that makes sense. So like I, I have literally no control over how many, how many books are sold or how they are reviewed, or even if, even if they are, Mm -hmm. um, and that has been like a real, you know, a real growth experience for somebody who wants to believe that no, 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 no. Like I can, I can make anything happen. Um, and also that, especially like making, making so many different kinds of things, making podcasts, making books, like running a retail-based, you know, benefit corp and and nonprofit. Like it is, it is constantly an exercise in, in learning without judging yourself. And in, uh, in Grand Rapids, Michigan, I uh, thought my book was boring. So I, I, you know, let's pull it from the shelves, like, which is honestly the first reaction that I ever had reading a bad review was I didn't just read the review, Sandy. I then clicked through and read about everything else this woman had reviewed and was like, okay, this woman has reviewed two things on Amazon. And one was a book about my dead husband, which she said was nothing special. And the other was a snow brush a snow brush for your car, which she gave five stars and, and gave a very detailed review of like, you know, like she was complimenting the grip, the bristle strength. It's like, you know, it's like, am I making this for her or am I making this thing for the people who find it and, and, and like it, which is, I think what I've noticed is for my entire life, I have always taken like criticism to heart and believed that it is a reflection of my own personal value. And I will take a compliment or an A plus or a five-star review and be like, well, I mean, who knows? So let's scroll down and see what people really think. Wait a minute. uh, You'll you'll accept the fact that you got five stars, but if somebody doesn't like it, that shakes your world. Oh, a hundred percent. I will like, I will ignore every compliment and then be like, okay, but let's just see why people hate me. Uh, yeah. Oh God. I know. Sometimes I wonder if I've made that an art form. You're really letting them in though. You're really letting them in, letting them, letting them get, uh, get deep inside your psyche. It is dark. I definitely, uh, definitely, definitely, um, have done that. And so the only way to control myself is to not look at anything, just not look. And soldier on kind of. And just soldier on and be like, okay, well, there's there's a very few people who I like bring in and, and ask their opinions of. And those are the opinions that I like truly trust. And I and I've also learned to like just take a compliment. So if somebody says that they like something that you that I made, I say, 
thank you. Thank you so much. And I am trying to actually like take my time and metabolize those things. And it, it like slowly, like really, really savor them. And that is the work of a therapist. I look at your life. And as you look back over your life, that obviously has, has worked for you. There's sort of like this reinvention for you. There's a myriad of endeavors, whatever the word is, that you embark on and that you feel comfortable with. And does it seem like I'm deifying you? Thank you for being impressed by that. I, part of it too, that I, that I want people to understand is that like, I think one of the reasons why I can try so many things is because it's literally my job. And so when people who, you know, are like have creative side projects, if they, if you work full time and you're also trying to do all this other stuff, like, of course your output is not going to, you know, match your dreams or, and you can't hold it up against a person who's, who does not have a job. Like my job is to keep myself employed by making things. (laughs) So Uh uh if I don't do these things, I don't get paid. And that is also a great motivator. That is a great creative, uh, creative motivator. Like if you do not have a choice, you will, you will, you will sink or swim. So thank you. And also part of the things that you see, you see things that like have worked. And then also behind the scenes, there are like a bunch of things I'm, I've tried that, you know, like haven't had the same success either. It's just a a lot of effort. It's almost like buying like a lot of different lottery tickets and seeing which one actually takes off. Yeah. Yeah. But as we talk about your creative and career successes, Contrast that with what was happening to you personally. Your memoirs notwithstanding, what did you envision for yourself? I mean, I knew I was 31 when Aaron died. So I knew like my life was not over. And also I was pretty happy having like already been in love once. And so I imagined like, you know, I'd raise our son. I might adopt some kids. I might have like a series of male concubines. And then (laughs) I would never like really need like, like I would never need a guy again, because I had already had that. And I already knew that I had everything it took to survive on my own because I had survived and kept two other people alive. And, and I'd done that. And I, so I just knew in my heart that I could survive pretty much anything like, and, and most people that I know who have, you know, gone through like a serious, you know, illness with somebody or who have had like shit fall apart before, like they know, like, well, you know, it probably can't get much worse. <laughs> and, mm-hmm. and that's what I know about myself. Like, so this is like, we are, we are recording this in the midst of a global pandemic. Like a lot of shit has gone wrong for a lot of people. Sure. And also a lot of people are looking around like, oh, is this your first time? Like, is this your first time having everything fall apart? Because uh-huh, this feels uh-huh, yeah. weirdly familiar for a lot of us. Like, uh-huh. oh, you're not sure how you're going to pay your bills. Oh, you don't really have a job anymore. Oh, uh, Because when I say I quit my job, what I mean is I stopped going and they stopped paying me. It was not like, you know, it wasn't an act of bravery so much as an act of like true depression. Uh Um, I didn't imagine like, like a super fabulous life for myself, but I just sort of thought like, I will just keep doing stuff and things will be okay-ish. And 
about a year after my husband, Aaron died, I met a person, a man named Matthew and my expectations were very low, but I could tell that like he had been through something too, and he had not been widowed, but he had been divorced, like in as bad a way as you can be. And we just connected really quickly and he is now my husband and we have this blended family of four children who are all home right now in various <laughs> states of homeschool. And what a beautiful place to land after so much suffering for all of us and and not something that I could have like imagined or aimed for in any way. But you weren't necessarily looking for it, were you? No, God, no, 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 no. And if I was, I wouldn't be looking for a divorced dad, you know, with, with, with kids and debt. No, like, no. No. Who's, who's two inches shorter than me? No, 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 no. Which is like, you know, you, you can't plan everything. Like you just cannot. And actually like you can't plan anything. You just can't. So separate from that, there's a mental approach to all this that clearly worked for you for whatever inner resources you were able to use. You did. did. And when I read this about you, the three major events in 2014, what was my first reaction? This is the most fucked up thing. It is so fucked up. Yeah. And also it's like, you're not obligated by the way to like turn your tragedy or your trauma or like your suffering into another thing. And for most people actually, like you're not going to, and it's not going to work. And that is okay. Like, I, I think that, I think that sometimes it it turns into like, oh, like I must Like, how quickly can I turn this into something else? Because that is a story that people really like and feel comfortable with. And this is who I was already. I was already a person who had spent like my whole life writing in a journal, processing information that way, processing my emotions that way. I was already a person who like knew how to take an idea and make it into a thing. I'd been doing that for clients and not for myself. So this is all like the culmination of all the different Noras that I have been sort of like peeling away the layers to who I am. And if, if that's not who you are naturally, like that is okay. Like that is okay. And also the success of a project cannot be measured by some external force. So it cannot be like, oh, I did get a book deal. I I made it on a bestseller list. Oh, I got like an advance or or like you truly will never be happy. You will never, ever be happy because those things are so out of your control and so ephemeral. and, And really like, if you are not just doing the thing for the, for the sake of it, it's going to be very hard to enjoy for me personally. Is this the Midwest sensibility? Maybe, but also like the Midwest sensibility is extremely practical too. And um, we got to make money too. Like we got to make money. And so most people, by the way, like do not make their income on creative endeavors. There's an article in the guardian uh, that called like, you know, the, the dirty secret of being a writer. You can only do it if you're rich. Yeah, that's true. Like when people like it, that's absolutely true. Like I don't make any money on 
on, if I'm not writing a book, like I'm not making money writing, like writing essays for publications, I would have to write like 10 a month to keep us afloat, uh-huh. like 10 or maybe 20. Like it's, you know, the, the pay is so bad and it takes 90 days to get paid. Sometimes, you know, sometimes a, a rare 30, but it's, it's really hard. So there's also no, nothing wrong. And actually there's great honor in having a job that just pays you and then doing a creative thing for yourself or for the sake of it or for whatever. Like, and that is, I think the reality that most people and most creative people are operating in, which is like, we want to do something that like, you know, feeds our souls and like feels good. And, 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 and like, most importantly, you got to stay fed and you got to keep a roof over your head. And there is nothing wrong with that being your priority. Right. I'd like to move over to bad moms. Talk about the genesis of that novel. Was that a big departure for you? Yes and no. So I actually, I don't even know how it came together. Honestly, I probably should. I think, you know, one of, one of my agents brought the project to me and they were like, do you know that this movie? And I was like, do I know this movie? I went into labor having seen this movie. Um, this movie came out and I, I watched it in the theater. Then we also watched it at home uh, the night before my, my, my baby, who is now three years old, was born, and I, I went into labor. I was like, "Oh my God, something is happening." Then I had a baby. It's so so funny, and I was so excited to turn it into a novel because the characters are so fantastic, and there's only so much that you can do in you know a ninety minute movie. There's only so much you can do with characters, with background story, and. I was really excited by it. I wrote it in, I think, four or six months. It was a very, very quick timeline. Uh, the guys who wrote the the screenplay supervised and consulted with me, and they're such generous, fantastic, creative people. And I am a naturally, you know, I, I'm a naturally funny person. I would not say like a naturally happy person, but I'm kind of a goofball mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. I love comedy. And so this project is an actual dream come true. Like the kind of thing that I've always, always wanted to do. And this is another thing that just came like pouring out of me and I cannot wait to write another novel. You get to make it all up. It's so great. I don't have to live another another tragedy to crank out a memoir. I can just make stuff up. Do you know how exciting that is? To me, sitting yeah. in front of a computer and writing is such an unnatural act. It's contrived for me. And I am in awe of people who do do that. Isn't that strange? That's how actually I felt about like writing a novel. I was like, ew, oh my God. Ugh. Like, how are you, how do you know like who these people are? Like where they live? Like, ugh. And so I, I think being able to write a first novel where some of that stuff was already determined and I got to, you know, go back and change things and expand on things was really I mean, the seed really was helpful. already planted in a sense. The seed was already planted, like these characters already existed, but like who were they before? Like before the first scene of the movie, that was like, that was what I wondered. And also what else is happening in their lives? Like what brought them to this point? What happens next? And, um, and like, who are they? Like, what is their internal monologue like? Because you don't get to do that in, um, 
you don't get to do that in a movie and you don't get to do that in a comedy. And so how could I make it like laugh out loud, funny, and also human? So these characters, they represent archetypes, like a working mom, a stay-at-home mom, and, you know, a single mom. But how can we, within this story and within those characters, also like truly, truly ground them and show everybody like just how similar we all are? How did Terrible, thanks for asking, your podcast come about? Why? So Erin and I wrote that obituary together. What was it about that obituary? Because it was so off the charts? I don't know. I mean, I can recite it from memory pretty much, which is, you know, um, per mort Erin Joseph, age 35, um, died due to complications from a radioactive spider bite <laughs> um, and a years long battle with a nefarious criminal named Cancer who has plagued our society for far too long. Civilians will recognize him as Spider-Man, but his family knew him as a mild-mannered art director, a creator of t-shirts and posters who always had the right kind of cardigan and the right thing to say, even when it was wildly inappropriate. Um, He's known for his stories, which he liked to repeat often. And then I talked about him being in, you know, this um, band in high school, which reached notoriety in the northern suburbs of Minneapolis. And then I said he is survived by his first wife, Gwen Stefani, his current wife, Nora McInerney, and his son, Ralph, who will grow up to avenge his father's untimely death. So <laughs> purely a joke. He he uh, he was never married to Gwen Stefani, but um, you know, I imagine, I imagine, I imagine he would have been like given the chance. He's very very charismatic. I think she would have really had a good time with him. So uh, her loss, yeah, I frankly, got you. I got you. So that went that went viral, and it got a lot of messages from a lot of different people, a lot of people, and they weren't just people who had lost husbands or dads or pregnancies; like they were just people who had been through something. And I was like, "Why are all these people emailing me?" And I was like, "Oh, because like they have not had the chance to talk to an actual friend or family member about this in a long time." because their friends and family aren't asking because their friends and family don't want to say the wrong thing. And that is why we're all here, you know? So I, I, I wanted to name the first book, terrible. Thanks for asking, but the book title was rejected because they thought that was too sad. I was like, okay. So I, I took that title. I brought it to American public media, which is based here in Minneapolis, Minnesota. And I, I said, I have an idea for a podcast. I have no experience. And for some reason they were like, that sounds great. Let's do it. So you step in it a lot, don't you? Just, yeah, just, just did it. Just did it. I just, I, I, I reached the right person at the right time. And, and honestly, I just asked. And I do think part of it was like the timing, which was, you know, now I think if you were to do that, I don't think it would work. And now everybody has a podcast, but four years ago, not everybody did. So that satisfies another creative part of your brain. Yeah, which is also like not just rehashing my own story, but helping other people find connection in like the struggles of other people. And I think it's, it's so interesting that this seems to be like, you know, like in a, an area that, you know, at, when I started, people were like, why would I listen to that? And now people are like, oh, I get it. Because eventually, like it happens to all of us. Like, right. it, you know, like life is hard for all of us unpredictably uncontrollably in different ways. And we've been finding, you know, connection in all of these kinds of stories forever. Like it is just what people have always done. So we do need each other's stories in every format. 
And I love being able to help just regular people be heard and have the time to like analyze and examine their story and tell it in a way that they haven't been able to tell it before when they've been trying to make it palatable for other people. What was it like to be invited to give a TED Talk? It was wonderful. (laughs) It was wonderful. It was as much imposter syndrome as you can have. like leading up to it, which was like, I don't have anything to say. And their, their team is so fantastic. And you're walked through like this entire process with a bunch of people who are already really, really, really good at this, like really good at it. So there are a lot of head bold face names, uh, given Ted. Yeah. Yeah. So it was, um, it was really wonderful. And also that I got to do it, um, in Palm Springs, I did it at Ted women and it was just like the most welcoming crowd that you can possibly imagine. Like when you are up there, you can't see anybody's face, but having been in that audience, I was like, Oh, everyone in the audience is absolutely pulling for you. You know, like they are, they are like beaming their, their love and their attention at you in a way that is like, so, so wonderful. And inspiring. Um, I bet. Yes, it really, really is. It was just such a singular experience and I, I will never be able to, to recreate that experience. And I'm so glad that it was fully there, fully present. And like, that is one thing that I really did like appreciate and, and fully felt while I was up. Very cool. And now still kicking. Talk about that. Still kicking was my husband, Aaron's idea. So the day that he had a seizure, he was wearing this old thrift store shirt uh, that says still kicking and it was cracked. And like the letter, it looks, it looks like a homemade shirt that somebody made for their uncles, like 110th birthday. <laughs> so it was already faded by the time he found it at the thrift store. It was his prized possession. He did not let me borrow it because I am a very sweaty person. And also he was concerned I would stretch out the arms, which is true. And also rude. So he was wearing it the day that he had a seizure. And I remember walking into the hospital and like not even being scared because he was so comfortable there. And I was like, Oh God, well, I guess we'll see what happens. And we thought it was so funny that he was wearing that shirt. We thought it was just the funniest thing in the world because we didn't know enough to be scared. And he was sick in 2011, 2012, 2013, 2014, which is like that technology has come a long way and he wanted to recreate that shirt and sell it and give the money to people who needed it because we realized uh, that everybody is who, who goes through something difficult, especially if it is a medical complication is pretty close to financial ruin. And there is a stat that I, you know, I, I probably misquote, which is that most Americans don't have $500 saved for an emergency. And I can tell you from experience that emergencies are way more than $500. Yeah. It's just a lot. And uh, after Aaron died, his friend Lindsay became my friend. And it, this kind of, it, it's very connected to the, the, the beginning of terrible things for asking, which is people were reaching out to me like, how do we get help? Like our lives are falling apart. How do we get help? And um, we we had been able to print some of the t-shirts right before Aaron died. So we did get to see that part, you know, come to life. But afterwards, um, we brought his idea across the finish line and we set up a website and we 
you know, uh, printed a bunch of shirts and we said every month we're going to give money unrestricted financial grant to a person who needs it. And that has grown from, you know, one Kelly green t-shirt to um, a, a bunch of, of items that, you know, encourage and help us help us like grow empathy to events, to e-courses and Still Kicking is just there to help people through hard things in whatever way that we can. And a huge way is through financial grants. So we have a benefit corporation that runs the retail side and the e-courses side and helps to fund the nonprofit, which does unrestricted grant making. So if you donate to Still Kicking, your donation goes right into grant making. And if you uh, buy something, it also helps us like fund a nonprofit and, uh, and, and create grants. And we create experiences that are designed to help you through hard stuff. So we have e-courses that we've you know, developed with a, a psychologist, my friend, Dr. Anna Roth, to help people dedicate some time towards processing their grief. So it's, it's still kicking without the G if, if, if people want. Oh. Yep. No G. It's still kicking.co. Well, Nora, you're a force to be reckoned with. Your enthusiasm and your honesty and your humor and la, 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 la is very contagious. I appreciate it because today sucked. I got to be honest. Like I was like in the worst mood this morning and was like, oh my God, just what's the point of anything? So uh, this 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 uh, interview really turned my day oh, around. That's great too. to hear. You know, nothing wrong with a distraction. As we wrap up, tell us what irons are in your fire. If you know, you know, I, I don't know that I have any huge plans for the future. I'm, I'm mostly trying to focus on the things that I have and, and really like appreciate and be in them before I try to like chase something new and shiny. Well, I think that's a perfect way to end. Nora McInerney, it was really great meeting and getting to know you. Thank you. Yes. It's so nice to meet you. Join us for another edition of Conversations with Creative Women. I'm Sandy Klein.